Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today, I am especially excited about the guest that we have with us. I was attending some public health meetings uh, not all that long ago and ran across none other than Dr. Louis Mel Madrona. I have known about Dr. Madrona for many years, and it was great to meet him in person. Louis, I am so glad that you pulled away from your very busy schedule to join us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, Louis, I should probably tell our audience a little bit about our connection because we just met, but uh, it might be of interest to our listeners. I've been doing this show for some 20 years, and uh, at the time that I was uh, invited to host this broadcast, I had been uh, practicing clinical medicine in Oklahoma. We were doing a lot with diabetes, working a lot with tribal nations throughout the country, and uh, yet I didn't have deep roots in Indian country. Even though I was working with a lot of Native Americans, I was trying to get more of a feel on Native American culture and especially on healing practices in Indian country. And one of the books that I ran across and actually uh, read uh, quite enthusiastically was a book called Coyote Medicine. Uh, Lewis, could you tell us a little bit about that book since you were the author? Well, it was really my sort of two-eyed seeing approach to medicine because I grew up in a Cherokee context raised by my grandparents. And I knew traditional healing. And then I got to medical school and was completely shocked. I was looking for the course on healing and Stanford didn't have one. So, so there was a, and this is all in the book. There was a defining moment when I was in a class, a pharmacology class, and the professor told us that life was a relentless progression toward death, disease, and decay. And the physician's job was to slow the rate of decline. And, um, my grandmother always taught me that you should die healthy so you can party on the other side. And, and I was just beside myself. So I immediately ran across campus to the Stanford Indian Center. I burst through the door. There was Henrietta Blue Eyes at the desk. I said, Henrietta, I need an elder. She said, what tribe? And I said, Cherokee. So she got out her Rolodex. She gave me two names. And I was with an elder by the next weekend. And it was really elders and fellow minority students who got me through medical school. Mm. And and so I've always had a foot in both worlds. And I've always been taking people and going to ceremony and spending time with elders. And I've also practiced conventional medicine for my entire life. And so the book was really about how to make sense of those two worlds, 
how to bridge them when possible, how to live separately and equally when when that's the only option. So it was really about living in two worlds. And and at the time, when I wrote the book, a coyote was someone who lived in two worlds. And um, I learned later that coyote has a lot more meanings <laughs> than, mm. than that. And some of them really difficult, like the Hopis are always killing off coyote terribly violently. And but coyote fares better in the Pacific Northwest. But in all cases, coyote is, is a survivor. Whenever torn limb from limb, coyote gets up and does it over again. So coyote is a survivor. And also he's funny and often ridiculous, which is how I feel much of the time. And, but he does good work. He, in Dene land, he stole fire from the monsters guarding it at the top of the mountain. And in Northern California, he stole fire from some hornets who were guarding it in a big kettle, albeit with the help of bear, eagle, and wolf. So he had some help. But, you know, he's always trying to do good, though. In Dene land, he set the mountain on fire. And First Mother had to invent cloud people to put out the fire. And in Northern California, everyone got mad at him because the sun was so hot that, you know, something had to be done. So nothing he does is perfect. Lewis, I so appreciate the tension that you're illustrating. And I think many of my listeners, as they're tuning in, some from Indian country, they're saying they can, you know, immediately relate to this because we have many professionals trained in Western medicine, public health, who listen to the show. We also have a lot of non-natives who tune in. And, you know, as you're talking about some of the traditional explanations for life and cosmology and among different tribes, you know, some people are thinking, well, this sounds really strange. And yet you're really sharing an experience that you lived. You grew up with these Cherokee roots, and then you head to a place that people would say would be practicing the pinnacle of Western medicine, you know, Stanford, getting your medical training there, and you're just seeing this huge disconnect. So to me, what I so love about your story is it speaks to people wherever they're at. If someone says, hey, I never grew up thinking that, you know, there was a coyote that stole fire from somewhere, uh, I can't relate to that. Well, you grew up with other beliefs, perhaps. You're tuning in. Maybe you're coming from a Christian worldview or a Buddhist worldview or stories that you grew up with, and you're trying to say, well, how does that mesh with where I'm at today as I try to wrestle with some of these issues? And, Lewis, you, with great transparency, shared your journey, how you tried to bring these two worlds together. And along the journey, for me, as someone who didn't have those deep roots in culture in Indian country, I felt like you were letting me walk alongside you, see through your eyes as you were trying to grapple with how do we use the best of what, quote, modern science has uh, identified, but still honor the, the traditions, the values of our ancestors or honor ourselves as far as our own spiritual roots, whatever those might be. Do you think I was hearing that correctly as I read through the book, or did I totally miss your point? No, absolutely. You're 
absolutely correct. And it's something that's coming to be called two-eyed seeing now. And it was uh, popularized by a Mi'kmaq couple, uh, Albert and Merdina Marshall. And the word in Mi'kmaq is Edoaptamunk. And so it it means that the indigenous version is as valid as any other version. And in fact, Albert's position is you need a bunch of ways to see the world because one of them might work and you don't know which one. <laughs> it's a good point because whether you want to just leave it in a Western medical context or a traditional native context, that's really what clinical practice is about, right? I mean, I, I see many patients who were saying, you know, I don't know exactly what you have, but let's do this uh, therapeutic trial, whether it's a natural therapy, whether it's a pharmacologic therapy, and you say, well, let's see if this impacts what we're dealing with, and you're just drawing from the wealth of experience and training that you have. I think there's a lot more we could talk about as far as your background, but before we talk more about that, there's a lot of folks who are saying, okay, this guy's got an interesting background. He wrote an amazing book back in 1996, but we're doing this interview in 2022, and uh, people are saying, well, what is he up to now? I mean, a, a lot of time has passed between then and now. You've got a couple extra letters or many letters after your name, but I know not only are you an MD, you're now a PhD as well. Tell us uh, what that doctorate is in. That doctorate is in clinical psychology, and I went on to do a postdoctoral fellowship in neuropsychology. So I learned how to do neuropsychological testing and and think about how the brain misfunctions in a variety of disease states, which is the conventional side of medicine that I find very interesting. And it's not always the most helpful side of medicine because it's a lot easier to document deficits than it is to fix them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I've taught residents, as I have for many years, I tell them, I remind them that it's easier to cause harm than it is to do good. So always remember that. We can hurt someone really quickly, but so we need to be aware that we can do damage. I think it's a refreshing perspective. And uh, those of you who are tuning in today who aren't physicians, I definitely value people like Lewis who acknowledge the fact that uh, when we're in a healing role, yes, there's great capacity for us to uh, to do harm. The dictum, you know, first do no harm is expressed for a reason. Lewis, the background, MD, PhD, as you've already shared, has taken you into the ranks of academia, if you will, as a teacher, teaching residents. Uh, you're involved with the University of Maine in their medical school, I understand. You also have a public health connection and uh, a connection with uh, an institute that bears uh, at least uh, some similarities in name with your book, Coyote Medicine. So tell us about the other affiliations that you're involved with in a little bit more detail than I was able to just touch on. Well, I'm, I work as the medical director for Wabanaki Public Health and Wellness, 
which is the ninth public health district in Maine, which serves the five indigenous nations of Maine. We serve the Penobscot, the Pescatamacati. There's two branches of Pescatamacati, the Maliseet and the Mi'kmaq. And um, the Maliseet and the Mi'kmaq are cross-border tribes. And so we get to coordinate with Canadian colleagues frequently in New Brunswick. And we also provide services for people in the large city of Bangor, Maine, population 30,000. But for most of Maine, that's a big city. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And, mm -hmm. And in fact, it's the second largest city in Maine. I lived in the Portland area for a while, and uh, that, yeah, like you talked about these great metropolises in Maine, I don't think our population back then was much larger than 30,000 either. No, Portland's grown now to 60,000. Oh, wow. Okay. It dates me, I guess. <laughs> it's a mega city. <laughs> You're making this impact in public health, and then tell us about the Coyote Institute and, and what that is and what your role is there. So I'm the director, and our focus is to bring indigenous knowledge and wisdom into the modern world of healthcare, particularly. We're certainly open to any other arena, but um, healthcare is our biggest focus. And we think that the indigenous knowledge is crucial for moving forward, that um, conventional medicine has reached some limits in terms of diabetes, heart disease, COPD, what the University of Pittsburgh uh, researchers call sedentary death diseases. Mm. Happen to you because you, because of lifestyle. So we think that indigenous knowledge can really contribute to that. Well, wow, you've got a great uh, depth of experience, and you're working in a lot of exciting areas that I know my listeners are engaged with. We're going to be hearing a lot of practical lessons that you've picked up, both recently and over the years. I'm Dr. David DeRose, my guest, Dr. Louis Mel Madrona. We've got a lot more coming up in today's edition of the broadcast. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after these important messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times. And it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest, Dr. Louis Melmadrona. If you've not been with us from the top of the hour, Dr. Melmadrona, both a medical doctor and MD and a PhD in clinical psychology. He has been uh, sharing with us a little bit about his journey, being brought up with uh, traditional Native values and then trying to get those to interface with the world of Western medicine. We're uh, talking about practical lessons now, things that he has picked up on during his journey and his life work. One of the issues that uh, Lewis and I were speaking about during the break, uh, Lewis, we're going to talk about this whole idea, whether we're dealing with what someone might call an addiction or whether we're dealing with a chronic disease like diabetes or obesity, a lot of what happens in medical circles, the patient perceives it as they are being, oh, maybe the word is too strong, but attacked, they're being criticized, Uh, fingers are being wagged at them, they're being shamed as far as some of these lifestyle issues that they're struggling with. Oftentimes, a physician will be perceived as saying, you know, just stop using this substance or just exercise or just change your diet. And when the patient comes back three months later, uh, no better, the doctor says, well, why didn't you listen to me? Uh, Having spent all of five seconds telling them what to do. So help us with this because you've been trying to bring indigenous wisdom into dealing with some of these issues. Um, Help us understand this dynamic and why sometimes patients feel far less than supported when they go for help to a healthcare provider. So an important lesson I learned from traditional elders is that people are always doing the best they can do in the circumstances they're in, given the history that they've experienced and their vision of the resources they have. And so our first job is to recognize that and to be compassionate for where they are at this moment in time and to recognize that 
they couldn't be anywhere else in this moment in time, given the trajectory of their lives. And, and in that sense, we have to acknowledge intergenerational trauma, historical trauma, you know, all of the things that we know so much about now. And the other thing I learned is that people are always trying to reduce their pain. And so why do people take heroin? Well, to, it reduces pain, whether the pain is emotional, physical, spiritual, communal, or all of the above. And it's usually all of the above. Substances reduce pain. People drink alcohol because it takes the pain away. And when we recognize and acknowledge that, and we look to the source of the pain, and we try and engage in deeper levels of healing than just telling people to stop drinking, then we can often be more successful. And I think that's what we endeavor to do at Wabanaki Public Health and Wellness, where I work, is to look to the source of the suffering and to try to respond in a compassionate way to the source of the suffering as well as providing the conventional medical treatments that are needed at the same time. I think I've heard Wabanaki mentioned in the, in the same context of doing some innovative things with narcotic addiction. Is that a correct association that I have, or um, am I confusing your group with some others? I think it's a correct association. When I first started working part-time with Wabanaki, which would have been eight years ago, there was very little going on in terms of opiate response in the various tribal communities. And we've gone from very little to opiate treatment programs in every single community and also in the urban setting of Bangor, Maine. And I think we do it extraordinarily well because you can't lose us. We keep finding you. Wherever you are, we will find you. And no matter how many appointments you miss, you're welcome. And, you know, we're a harm reduction program. So if you're using other substances and we're giving you Suboxone, well, we're going to try and help you sort that, but we're not going to kick you out. So. I like to say to people, we're Wabanaki. You're stuck with us for life. (laughs) (laughs) I love the imagery, and I know some of my listeners who come from a Christian perspective, they'll say, well, that sounds a lot like God, our creator, you know, following us wherever we go. Others will, uh, you know, make some other connections there. But one of the things about that perspective that I so appreciate, I don't know if you've seen the same thing, Louis, because both you and I have been in medical practice for a while. I've been shocked to see the mindset in a lot of circles. I'm not saying this is a global problem, but it's like um, I was talking with someone once and they said, well, you know, you're the only physician that will see this patient or something. And I'm going, well, like, why? You know, well, all the other doctors have fired them. And, you know, this whole idea of firing people because they, they didn't show up for appointments or they weren't nice to the doctor. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, life-threatening encounters, but uh, you really seem to have embraced at Wabanaki this attitude of you're committed to help people. You know, if, if they 
seem like uh, they're struggling with their own commitment, you're not giving up on them. So I really like that. And I think, at least from my vantage point, it seems like something that's in short supply in a lot of places. Is that just where I've been? Am I just walking around the wrong places? Or do you see the same thing in medicine? I see the same thing in medicine. We have so many tribal members who have been fired from practices for missing appointments or for their hemoglobin A1C to be too high because that affects payments. And so we take care of those people. We fill the gaps. And one of our mottos is, we're with you wherever you are on your journey. Mm. And I think that's extremely important because um, you you just don't know when someone's ready to change. It's It's a mystery to me. That moment when someone says, okay, I want to be different, how that comes about is one of the great mysteries of life. And I've just been amazed. People have walked into my office after a couple years of me, my meeting with them. I remember one woman walked in and said, all right, I'm bored with being crazy. I'm going to stop. And she did. She she said, I'm going to start eating well, exercising, doing all the crazy things you've told me to do that I've never done before, going to groups, and I'm I'm going to stop being crazy. <laughs> and it's been 12 years. No, no, wait, you got, you really got my interest as a physician here. So when she said she was going to stop being crazy, she obviously had some kind of medical diagnosis. So what was the diagnosis she had? A schizoaffective disorder, bipolar subtype. Okay. And so a lot of people would say, well, that's a pretty hopeless diagnosis. They're going to deal with that for the rest of their life. You know, you can just be there, give, medicate them. But are you telling me that right now, if this woman walked into a mental health professional's office, they may not put any diagnosis on them? That would be correct. She's on no medications for the past 12 years. Wow. Got off disability, Social Security. She's become a a successful artist. And um, you wouldn't know that she'd had over 300 psychiatric hospitalizations. No way. 300 hospitalizations? More than that. Not 400. (laughs) Wow. So you help us now with this because this is challenging a lot of folks. They're hearing this story. It's an amazing story. And it's challenging me. So do you think, I mean, we can't minimize the importance of her making a decision that she wanted to get better. But having said that, she then did a lot of things that you were recommending, and it sounds like you were recommending a lot of lifestyle-based interventions, if you will. Can you break that down for us? Because there's other people listening today uh, who either have mental health issues or they're working with people who have mental health challenges, and they're saying, well, do we need to send everyone up to Maine to see Dr. Mel Madrona, or is there something that we could tap into? Well, I think what mattered for her, one of the things that she told me that was really important was that I never stopped believing that she could be well. Mm. And I never treated her like a crazy person. And I never disagreed with any of her stories or told her that her stories couldn't be true. You know, I listened and I didn't judge, I didn't interpret. And 
for two years, we met together once or twice a week. And she told me stories. I told her stories. We did some osteopathy, some acupuncture. Um, and during those two years, you know, she was still on medication, but she didn't go to hospital. And that was an extraordinary change for her. And when she decided to get well, we had three groups that we led, and she started eventually going to all of them and doing the exercises and eating well, and and she just never looked back. This is fantastic. I know you've got a lot more great stories, practical learning opportunities for those who are tuning in today. Dr. Louis Mel Madrona is my guest. When we come back, I'm going to tell you how you can get a hold of Louis, some of the work that he's doing, some of the organizations that he works with, and a lot more practical things for you and for those that you love. Stay tuned. More coming up right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov slash meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose for the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Dr. Louis Mel Madrona 
is sharing with us uh, some things that I find amazing about the power of combining indigenous wisdom with modern Western medical science. Lewis, before we speak more about that theme, we want to let people know, as I promised at the end of the last segment, that you can be reached. You've got resources that are available online. Tell us about some of the places uh, where we can contact you. I have a website, which is uh, www.mel-madrona.com. And Coyote Institute also has a website, which is www.coyote-institute.org. And we have lots of free resources that we'd be happy to share with people. And we have an annual conference on two-eyed seeing that we do at the University of Maine. And it comes up at the end of January. And We'd be really happy to tell people more about that. So my email address is on both websites. And um, I'm happy to be contacted. That is so uh, so generous of you. I know you're uh, extremely busy, but I appreciate how you make time for things, especially that relate to the health of people throughout Indian country and beyond. So let me make sure I've got those websites down because others likely were trying to write them down or at least memorize them if they're driving. So I've got for Coyote Institute, www.coyote-institute.org. Have I got that correct? Yes. And then your personal website, I've written down www.mel, which is M-E-H-L, then dash madrona, M-A-D-R-O-N-A dot com. Have I got that right? Yes. Okay. So basically, folks can go to either of those websites, and I'm assuming there's different material on those different websites, correct? Correct. Do you want to give us kind of an overview? What would I find at your personal website, and what would I find at Coyote Institute? Well, my personal website is more about me. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, <clears throat> papers that I've written, books that I've written, um, research I'm doing. And Coyote Institute is more about our mission, the mission of Coyote, which is to bring indigenous wisdom into the modern world. And um, one can look at research that we've supported and research that we're currently doing, events that we're creating, free trainings that we offer, things like that. It's not Great. focused on it's not focused on me. <laughs> so that's so, the difference. <laughs> so if someone says, hey, I want to head up to Maine at the end of January, maybe they like uh cross country skiing or maybe they heard of uh Sugarloaf Mountain and they want to do some uh downhill skiing in Maine. And they say, hey, let's take in a conference uh, on the trip. They'd find details about that at the coyoteinstitute.org? Yes, yes. Okay, good. So we're on the same page there. So let's come back now to this concept that we've been touching on, you know, this two-eyed seeing, this idea of tapping into indigenous wisdom as well as modern Western medicine 
And let's bring it back to this story of the woman that you told us about in the last segment. So just to summarize, if some are just joining us, you told what to me as a physician was an amazing story. A woman that all her peers herself identified her as crazy, multiple, I mean, hundreds of mental health, hospital admissions. I mean, this is a serious psychiatric patient. You shared more details about the diagnosis. We don't need to go down that route necessarily, but you told the story where now she is medication-free, mentally normal, ostensibly, functioning as an artist, contributing member of society, and people are asking the question right now, very likely, well, what does indigenous wisdom have to do with the treatment that you rendered? So whether you want to illustrate it in that story or you have another story that better illustrates that point, help us kind of understand, well, for someone who doesn't think that way, why is indigenous wisdom something that uh, was utilized and what does that look like? Well, I think most importantly, it has to do with having faith that people can heal. Mm. Holding that faith, holding the vision of the person as well which is what traditional elders do all over North America. And listening without judgment or interpretation. And one of the people whom some of your listeners will know who did that in the most extraordinary way was Vern Harper in Toronto. And there's, of course, many other elders around the country. But one of the things I learned from Vern was how amazing it felt to be heard fully without being judged or interpreted. And so, um, so another story. And for the most part, I work with people who are indigenous because I work in indigenous settings, except on some weekends when I work in the general hospital with anyone who comes. Okay, But most of the more in-depth stories that I can tell are going to be about indigenous people. The last story, the woman was Lakota. Uh, in this story, the woman is Nima. And when we first met her, she couldn't get out of her vehicle. Mm. And she was too frightened. Her abuse had been so severe on all fronts, every type of abuse. And so we just sat with her and talked to her through the vehicle window. And that was how we we started. And eventually she was willing to come outside and meet around a fire. Mm-hmm. And so we did that. And at some point we did a ceremony and offered her a medal for having taken on the abuse to protect her siblings from Mm. their abuse. And so um, we just kept listening to her stories, telling her stories, going to ceremony with her, uh, taking her to elders, being with her ourselves, doing some art, and Eventually, she could move indoors, 
and eventually she became well. Again, no medications and functioning and in a healthy relationship. And uh, it took some years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the indigenous part of it is, is recognizing that we have to have faith in people and that we have to address all levels of people, emotional, physical, spiritual, and social, which is the wisdom of the medicine circle in indigenous North America. And that, you know, the idea that people get well through finding harmony and and balance. In Lakota language, it's Wichozani. And that um, there's a a guy that some of your listeners will know, also Larry Swallow on Pine Ridge, who told us that elders who do healing work are not healers. They're people who create a safe place for the medicine. Mm. And it's powers greater than us, more than human, who assist with the healing, in my view. And what we do is to create a safe place for that to happen. And I think that was true of the work that we did with both of them, the women mm-hmm. that I've told you about, mm-hmm. is that our job was to create that space. And where the mysterious forces could meet. I love the picture because, like I've shared earlier in this show, there's people with a lot of different spiritual perspectives that tune in to American Indian and Alaska Native living. And uh, regardless of where they come from, the people that feel spiritually connected, whether they're listening to this and they're saying, well, I can relate to that in our community, whether it's a, a faith community, whether it's a tribal community, that we need to be doing a better job of accepting people, loving them, showing them that we're there for them, um, letting them know that we believe they can get better, not looking at them as a disease, as uh, you know, one of the criticisms of medicine is you know that stereotype, oh, it's the appendix in room 15 and the gallbladder in room 20, depersonalizing people into their diagnoses. So really, um, I appreciate this because... Whether someone's tuning in and they have those deep native roots like you do, or they're just listening to the show because they like the health content, the insights that we gain from people like you, Lewis, you're really saying there's a much bigger picture than we often appreciate in conventional medical circles. And we need to be listening to native healers, to native elders, because there's something here that's missing. And you're telling us about patients that Honestly, a lot of people would say these folks, uh, dare I say it, in many circles, they have no hope. Why is this patient in my office? I can't do anything for them. We've heard that from providers before. I will admit sometimes I'm even tempted to think that when I look at someone's uh, diagnosis, but I appreciate you reinforcing this this capacity, not only that individuals uh, have from their creator to heal, but also that there are factors outside of them, uh, spiritual factors that are involved in this process. Lewis, someone wants to uh, really dig into this more deeply. They're hearing about it for the first time. If they go to the website, 
www.melmadrona, that's M-E-H-L dash Madrona, M-A-D-R-O-N-A dot com. That's your website. Are they going to find some things there that will help them on this journey? They'll certainly find some videos to watch and some books to read and articles. And I hope, I mean, that was the goal in getting all that material was that it would help people on their journey. And I hope it does. Good, good. I know you're someone who's willing to take feedback. Before we have to step away uh, just one more time, you've got uh, some other books that people can connect with. We mentioned Coyote Medicine. Just uh, really briefly, uh, what are the other titles that you've written? And uh, then we'll pick that back up after the break. After Coyote Medicine was Coyote Healing and then Coyote Wisdom, and then Narrative Medicine, and then Narrative Psychiatry, and then Remapping the Mind. Okay. These are all fascinating topics. We wish we had you for several hours. I know that won't happen this episode, but maybe some other time. We do have another segment, though, coming up. So all of you, if you're tuning in today, I encourage you to stay by. Dr. Louis Melmadrona, he's not going away. One final segment coming up right after this. Don't miss it. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. 
Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose for the final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I've had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Louis Melmadrona for the duration of this one-hour broadcast, and uh, so glad that you've been able to stay by, Louis. We've been talking about some fascinating topics, and you and I, as we were chatting during the break, uh, you brought my mind back to so many patients over the years who have gotten one of the most devastating diagnoses, and that is brain cancer. Uh, some people may know the name glioblastoma multiforma, this uh, very aggressive brain cancer. Normally when we hear the diagnosis, we're basically thinking the person doesn't have much time, regardless of what therapies are being done. But you told me you had an amazing experience with someone with that very diagnosis, and I'm all ears to hear it. I know my listeners are as well. So tell us that story. This is the story of one of my favorite elders, and some of your listeners may know of him. He's crossed over now, but not from brain cancer. So in his 60s, he was diagnosed with glioblastoma. And he was, by practice and training, an Anglican priest. And he had not followed, he was Cree in origin, but had not followed the Cree way. And after a bit, he realized that the Christian way wasn't helping. And so he went to a Cree healer. And to the surprise of his doctors, his cancer disappeared. And then he was in a quandary because here he was having spent years being an Anglican priest, and yet it was the Cree medicine that had helped him to get well. And he had a vision, and it was a vision of Christ on the cross surrounded by an elder in each of the four directions smoking their sacred pipe. And he realized that it was all one, that he could do both. He could be Anglican and Cree at the same time. And he proceeded to do that. And when I met him, it was some years after the glioblastoma. And he was vibrantly treating people in his home on Sturgeon Lake First Nation, west of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and uh, doing ceremony in the evening or the afternoon. And uh, the, the thing I loved about John was that he was someone who had absolute faith that anyone could get better. Mm. And the question that he would say, well, I did. Look at me. Look what mm -hmm. happened to me. I got better. <laughs> you know, this is an amazing story, Lewis. And I think a lot of folks are getting the encouragement that there's hope for them, even with diagnoses where doctors would give up hope. And some are listening from a Christian perspective, since you mentioned the, you know, Christian Anglican connection there. Some are saying, well, I'm Christian too, and I'm fine with you using natural therapies and herbal therapies. To a lot of people, when I talk with them, if they're not native, you know, you talk about the sweat lodge, you talk about other indigenous practices, and they say, well, yeah, we believe in hydrotherapy, hyperthermia. We use that in cancer treatment even. I know of healers that aren't indigenous 
that are using a lot of things that we'd say interface with this indigenous wisdom. So I know the criticisms that sometimes come when we try to merge wisdom from two different perspectives, but uh, I always challenge people, don't um, don't disparage something just because you may have a problem with, sometimes I use the term, the cosmology, like the worldview. You don't agree with that. It doesn't mean that the therapy wasn't efficacious. I mean, I know there's a much bigger dialogue, but I think it's encouraging just to hear this perspective of let's stop and reevaluate. What are the options? Don't throw out cultural values. I don't care what explanations have been given them. But as I look at indigenous practices throughout the world, there's always some sound scientific wisdom. I don't think it's all just spiritual uh, healing. Some people think, oh, well, you know, that's a good spirit or it's an evil spirit that's doing that. So uh, I appreciate you bringing that into the dialogue, even though we can't fully uh, flesh that out in today's show. But Lewis, I know you've got some other examples, too, that will engage us and challenge us and want folks to dive more into this topic. So share another story with us. Well, so when I was at the University of Pittsburgh once upon a time, I met a woman with glioblastoma. And we had been bringing traditional elders from Pine Ridge to Pittsburgh for some time. And she had come to some of those events and ceremonies. And surprisingly, she had a seizure. And we figured out she had a glioblastoma. And she had the conventional treatments and then dove into working with the traditional elders. And we supported her in going to Pine Ridge and being with them there. And we brought them from Pine Ridge to work with her and others in Pittsburgh. And um, so that was in 1997. And she's still alive and well today in 2022. Wow. Yeah, with no recurrence of the glioblastoma. Well, this is amazing stuff. I know years ago I sat in a, a meeting with the National Cancer Institute, and at that time they were very interested in these in these case stories about untreated or untreatable, quote-unquote, cancers and what people were having success with. So I know we sometimes try to package all of these things into some set of remedies, but I know your emphasis has been on holistic healing and people connecting with community and and uh, having support, so we don't want to depreciate any of these things. Lewis, unfortunately, as I sometimes joke with my guests, the clock always wins. No matter how much great material you've got, we're going to run out of time today. But for individuals who are wanting to go deeper into this, maybe they're part of a tribal nation, maybe they're on tribal council, maybe they're in the, the health department, maybe they're working for a tribal health program. Uh, Maybe they're not Native, but they're intrigued by some of your stories, some of your concepts. We've mentioned your books just by name. I'm assuming if we go to your personal website, we could connect with those books. I mean, are there sample chapters, places to purchase the books? Tell me how that works. Well, they're all on Amazon, for sure. They're listed on my website, and I think we have a link to Amazon. 
that's something we should definitely have. I'll have to look into that. Okay, good. Well, we've got a little time before the show goes out, so we'll uh, hopefully by the time this airs, there'll be some operative links if they weren't uh, functional already. So we've just got to remember your name. It's Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, and then spell your last name for us as well. M-E-H-L-M-A-D-R-O-N-A. Okay, so Lewis Mel, M-E-H-L, Madrona, M-A-D-R-O-N-A. There's a hyphen or a dash between the Mel and Madrona. If you remember Lewis's name, www.melmadrona, there's a hyphen in there, don't forget it, uh, .com will take you to his website, and uh, you can just stick his name into Amazon and find any of his books. So we talked about Coyote Medicine, your first book, the gives us this background of how you grappled with these two worlds in your own experience. And a quick synopsis of the other titles that have come out. Can you do that for us? Yes. So Coyote Healing was about amazing stories of healing that I'd encountered, you know, taking people and working with elders. And Coyote Wisdom was about figuring out the stories that they told people to stimulate or to facilitate healing. Mm -hmm. And then narrative medicine was about connecting the way elders worked with stories to the way um, the non-Indigenous world worked with stories. Mm -hmm. So bringing Indigenous, non-Indigenous, and medicine together in the form of narrative medicine. And then... I applied that to psychiatry in narrative psychiatry. And then in Remapping Your Mind, my co-author, Barbara Mangai, and I looked at how to change your story, how to live a different story than the one you're living. And we tried to come up with exercises and tools for doing that. Wow. Exciting stuff. Lewis, our time has uh, slipped away from us. Thank you so much for uh, all that you've done to help people connect with indigenous wisdom and try to translate that into their own lives. And in the case of those of us who are health professionals into our own practices, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And to each of you, my listeners, thank you so much for joining us again on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. For all of us, I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.